0: Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the break that we just had, for the meal that has filled our bellies. And we just pray now that it will help us to think that as we look at your word and we look at um, what Ellen White has to say about how our lifestyle should be an argument in favor for you, that we will understand, Lord. But even more, we pray that we may come to know you better so that our lives may may reflect you to those we come in contact with so that they may desire to come to know you too. We ask these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as you can see, the title of this seminar is The Strongest Argument, and as as Pastor Kim said, I am currently a student in law school, and law is all about making the strongest argument. We have to get up in front of panels of three judges at a time in this um, extracurricular um, activity called Moot Court. And what happens is you have a nice little presentation, kind of like what I have here, and there's three people there watching you make it. But if they don't understand something you say, they're not polite and just sit there, and they don't even raise their hand if they have a question. They interrupt you and they're like, counselor, now isn't it true that, and they start bugging you with different types of questions, and you have to stop for your presentation, you have to answer their question, and you're always hoping that you have the best argument for it, because after your presentation is done, the lawyer for the other side of the case has to make their presentation, And you want the argument that's most consistent that the judges will adopt so that your client wins. So a strong argument is something that we know in general is important. But especially in faith, we want the strongest argument for people to know why they should believe in Jesus. And what we're going to look at today, that the strongest argument we can ever present is not one that is doctrinal necessarily. It does result as... Um, It does come as a result of studying God's Word, but it's something that you don't necessarily show in a book. It's not something you necessarily preach in a sermon. Rather, it's something that people see in you and in me every single day, the strongest argument. Um, What we're going to be talking about at first is going to overlap a little bit with what Tondo said. So if you weren't here in the last session, you get some review, and if you were here, you get some review too. Um, But what I call this is authentic Christianity. Now, I like Macs. And how do you guys know that this computer is a Mac? There's an Apple on it. And some of you ladies, maybe not here, I don't know, you carry like certain types of purses. Like if there's a big C on the purse, what kind of purse is that? A coach. Um, Those are like the only two logos I can think of off the top of my head right now. But there are brands on things, right? And with these brands, we know that they are authentic. Now, if you go into a big city, they might try to make like a Prada purse into like a Prado purse and they'll like, you know, stick the tiny logo. And so it almost looks real, but if you look close enough, you see the mark is not authentic. And what happened was when I was doing campus ministry as a student, I was in charge of Bible study. And I had a a student who came out named Dalila. And actually, she was a friend of a student who was coming to the Bible study, and she would always be sitting in the room. We were having the Bible study in um, in her friend's room, and we would always invite her, you know, Dalila, do you want to join us for Bible study? And she'd be like, "Ugh, what I don't understand about Christians is if they love Jesus, how come they're so hypocritical? How come they're so, like, not even saying yes or no to the Bible study? She starts, like, going against Christians. And... Um, and it, it completely floored me. I'm like, well, I, I just asked if you wanted to study the Bible. you know. But she wasn't ready to open the Bible because she had had bad experiences with Christians in the past. And so what we just started to do was develop a friendship with her. You know, We would include her in our conversation at the beginning of the Bible study. She'd always stay in the room for the Bible study, but she'd sit at her computer. So she'd see who we were before, and then she'd kind of listen to us having the Bible study. And as time continued to go on, She left that computer screen that she would usually be at during the Bible study, and she would come closer and closer into our meeting, and she finally started getting engaged in the Bible studies. But the the question that she had at the beginning that I didn't know how to answer at the time was, because my response to her the first time that she said, you know, what what about these Christians? You know, that they're not um, they're not they're not saying what or they're not doing what Christians say that they should do. And I said, well, you know, maybe they're not real Christians. And she's like, well, how can you tell the difference between a real Christian and an unreal Christian? And I was like, oh, that's a good question. And so I started asking people and I started studying and that's what we came across. So how do you know what a real Christian is? What's the brand of authenticity on a Christian where people can look at and be like, if I follow Jesus, that's what I will be like. Not if I look at, if I follow Jesus, I'm going to be just like everyone else, or I'm going to be the same as I am right now. And so. Um, Her question was similar to some other famous people. This is a quote from Gandhi. I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. There's this problem that Christians don't seem to follow in the same footsteps that Jesus did. Put another way, more simply, it says this. If all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be Christian. Isn't that crazy? Like, this is Gandhi, you know, a great peace guy. He won the Nobel Prize and, um, and he, was, he was a very intelligent man. And he said, if all Christians actually acted like Christ, they would all be Christians. And I, when I read this quote, I stopped and I thought about it. I don't know if I've ever actually heard, and I'm sure I have, but I had to really rack my brain. I've never or rarely heard anyone actually say a bad thing about Jesus himself. They'll call him a moral teacher. They'll call him a good man. They'll say many good things about Jesus, but the criticism that comes against Christianity isn't in the founder of the religion. It's in those who claim to follow the religion. And if the followers of the religion were actually following the leader of the religion, then supposedly the whole world would be Christian. And so that really got me thinking, if you know, even my secular university professors who don't believe that Jesus was the son of God don't have any beef to pick with him based on what he said and what he taught, what, it, what is it then about Christianity that is keeping them from, from accepting the gospel? So let's see what our experience should be. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. And this is where we're gonna see what is it How are people supposed to be able to tell what a true Christian is? What is this mark of authenticity? And I think I've been kind of hinting at it. First John chapter three, Um, and I'm reading verses two through six. You know what? That's not the right verse. It's chapter 2, verses 3 through (laughs) 6. I think I was typing too fast. All right, and the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in them. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked." So whoever says they abide in Jesus, how should they walk? They should be walking the same way that Jesus walked. Um, Yesterday, we were walking down the hallway, and a friend said, you know what? I think that's another friend of ours. And then he's like, oh, no, 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 that can't be her. That can't be her. And then we got closer, and guess what? It was her, and you know how he knew it was her? Because of the way that she walked. In the same way, you know, it, this isn't necessarily literally walking, how you put one foot in front of another, but if we're following the commandments of God, if we are being faithful to those, people will be able to see that we're walking in the same way that Jesus walked. Um, But I think it goes even beyond the treating the Ten Commandments or treating the Bible like a checklist. I have to act like this, I have to act like this. It goes back to what Tondo was talking about, about having that experience with God where you're completely like mortified when you see your own character, but then God changes who you are as a result of that experience and you have an intimate experience with God and you come to know who He is. Um, Something that I learned that came out of this is, as as, um, Pastor Kim said, I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I was raised in Berrien Springs, Michigan. I went to Ruth Murdoch Elementary School and Andrews Academy, which are two Seventh-day Adventist schools. And besides the non-Adventists in my family, so some cousins, some aunts, some uncles, I didn't know any non-Seventh-day Adventists until I was like 18, 19 years old. Um, But, What happened was my mom was my high school Spanish teacher and those of you who are struggling right now because you're tired because we just ate lunch, I want to let you know I understand. Having class after lunch is terrible. My mom, she taught me high school Spanish after lunch and all I wanted to do was sleep but she was one of those teachers who would like make you jump on the desks and stuff like that, like to wake you up. I promise I won't make you guys do that. But because my mom was a Spanish teacher, she would take her students on trips to Spain and um, she would organize it through programs like EF or different you know, school programs that take their students to see different parts of the world. And as a result, our school is small. We didn't have enough people in the program to fill up a whole tour, so we would be paired with students from other public schools. And so this was really my first time to encounter other people who believed things differently than me. And I remember we were eating dinner one day and um, I had my plate of like noodles and, and pasta and the girl next to me was eating ham because in Spain they basically only eat seafood and they eat um, and they eat pork like it's not a very adventist friendly diet there and um, I don't know how the conversation came up, but the girl started telling me like, oh, you know what, like in, in, in Acts, you know, because Peter saw the vision of all the animals in the sheet, like we can eat anything we want now. And I was like, no, that's not true because Leviticus 11 says, and we get into like this big fight. <laughs> and later on, I was like complaining about it to my mom. I didn't really know who this girl was, but I was like, you know, she claims to be a Christian. You know, she's using the Bible to support what she says, but that's not even what that, that passage actually says. And I was like frustrated. And my mom told me, because she, she did not grow up in the same circumstances that I did, she, she came into the church um, when she was older. She said, just remember, Amy, sometimes you may be the only Jesus that someone ever sees. And that really struck me, and that's something that I took along with me when I finally did leave Berrien and, and went into secular universities. That. our our relationship with Jesus and how that's reflected to the other people may be the only opportunity people have to come to know who Jesus is. And that's a big responsibility on ourselves. We, in and of ourselves, we're sinful people. We can't really show who Jesus is. We have to rely on him changing our hearts for us to show who he actually is. And another story to show how that actually worked was um, my mom. She teaches Spanish because she's Cuban and uh, her family lived in Cuba before the revolution, and my great-grandfather owned a plantation, and he was not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he um, you know, would welcome whoever came onto his plantation, and there were these two young men portering on the plantation, and he bought a great controversy from them, and you know, he was very, very pleased to meet them. I don't even know if he actually ever read the book, but, um, you know, they left, but he had been really impressed with these young men. Well, the following summer, they came back to his plantation and they talked to him again and, and my great-grandfather asked them, like, you know, where do you guys go to school? You're just such impressive, nice, genuine young men. And they're like, oh, we go to the Adventist High School in Santa Clara. And so he's like, I'm sending my kids there. So as a result, my, my grandmother and her brother, they were sent to the Adventist School in Cuba. They were raised there and they came to know Jesus at that school. Um, there's some complicated history between there. My grandma left the church, but now she's back in it, and my mom's in it too. But it's, you know, the, one of the reasons why I'm even standing here today as a Seventh-day Adventist is because there were two young men who reflected the character of Jesus to my family, and that's how they began to bring us in. Um, and let's see. Let's go to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. This is another marker of how we can tell when we're experiencing authentic Christianity, the result of which, or it results from the experience that Tondo was talking about this morning with having an intimate relationship with God in our devotional life. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Um, And the Bible says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How will people know we're really Jesus' disciples? If we love one another. And, you know, I think many times we take that that verse for granted. Like, oh, yeah, 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 I love the other people in the church. I love the other people in the church. But on a campus, when when you think about the other, and who is he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. It's not if you love the visitor who comes into the church for that day and inviting them to potluck. It's other disciples. Do you love one another? And um, I can speak from personal experience that there were times in my undergraduate experience that I did not always love the other Adventists in my group. I didn't hate them. I didn't dislike them, but I was not loving them. I wasn't treating them you know, in a selfless way. I wasn't humbling myself to be able to serve them. And that made ministry very hard to do with one another. But once we realized the importance of us humbling ourselves towards each other and serving each other, not just ministering to the other students who we're gonna come in contact with, but ministering to each other, Seventh-day Adventist students, to encourage one another, our group dynamic completely changed. And because everyone in our group liked to hang out with one another, people from other groups wanted to come in, and they're like, hey, you know, what's going on here? And, and just the love that was going on between our own personal group was a witness to the groups on the outside. And that love was something that transcended uh, racial boundaries. Our group at, at the University of Michigan very diverse. We had Hispanics, we had Asians, we had whites, we had Africans. We had like everything, and um, and people would come into our meetings and they'd see us like there. W- it wasn't like the black kids were hanging in one corner and the Hispanic kids were in another corner and the Koreans were in a northern corner. We were all intermingling with one another, and they like what group is this where there's people from all over the world interacting, like loving one another? And we're like, well, we're Seventh-day Adventists and people would start to get curious and some of them even stayed for Bible study. So that's the importance that, you know, we need to practice loving one another. Now, how is it, and this is just reviewing a little bit of what Tondo said, but how is it that we have this experience? Let's go to um, Acts 4.13. And this is probably a familiar verse to you all. It's talking about um, John and Peter. And the Bible says, "'Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John "'and perceived that they were uneducated common men, "'they were astonished, "'and they recognized that they had been with Jesus.' Because of the way these two uneducated men were able to speak, they had known that they had been with Jesus, that Jesus had educated them. But in the same way, we may lack deficiencies within our own character, even within our own mental development. Maybe you'll have a professor who they saw you failed that first exam of the semester but through the, what Tondo was saying, earnest prayer with God, in addition to our hard work in our classes, your grade improved by the end of the semester. The professor can take note that, man, this student, they have been with Jesus. Or the fact that you used to be angry all the time. You used to yell at your roommate and storm out. I used to, I didn't yell at her, but I would fight with my roommate. Um, you know, but see a, a drastic change in the character of, your, of their roommate and be like, man, the only way this could have happened is because they've been with Jesus. We need to be with Jesus in order to display authentic Christianity. In the same way that, you know, only Steve Jobs' company can make a real Mac computer. You know, you can't go to Dell to buy a Mac. Like, (laughs) the only person who can give you an authentic Christian character, an authentic Christian persona to show the world is Jesus himself. And that's something important for us to remember. Um, in the chapter that, that Pastor Kim mentioned earlier, it says, Christ must be formed within the hope of glory. Let Jesus be revealed to those with whom you associate. So, in the same way, remember, we may be the only Jesus that other people see. I don't mean we're actually Jesus. Like I'm not, you know, getting into pantheism or anything like that, but the character that he is writing onto our hearts to reflect him may be the only opportunity that some people have to learn who Jesus is. Hopefully we'll get the opportunity to, to, you know, share more with them. But just remember our character may be the only thing that they'll ever be able to see. So the next thing that's important about our lifestyle on campus is it's something that has to beg a question. You know how people will kind of like try to egg you on? You know, they'll, they'll keep dropping hints like, oh yeah, you know, like, oh, my, my, my foot hurts so bad and I'm limping and, you know, but they won't tell you how it happened because they're trying to get you to be like, well, how did you hurt your foot? So you can be like, oh, it was crazy, you know, like a rhinoceros ran over it or something. I don't know, <laughs> you know. They're trying to beg the question and, um, and in the same way, I think God designed our life, the Christian life, the authentic Christian life, in order for it to beg a question. And the reason why begging a question is important is it's God's marketing strategy. Now, I'm going to show you guys a picture. Try not to laugh too hard. Um, it's not funny, but it makes a point. So, this, these two people are actually both, one's currently in the campus missionary training program and the other um, was my roommate at the campus missionary training program and the the little thing I have above there says transcending the everyday and what that is is there's a scholar who she's talking about glamour and she says that glamour is the ability for us to transcend the everyday to take a normal object but to tweak it just enough that it's it's something that you want to be a part of it's like man they have something that I don't have, and there's something mysterious about it, right? They're both wearing sunglasses, and you know, it it looks kind of like a glamour shot that you might see in a magazine, but I didn't want to put anything from a magazine up here, so I took this picture of my friends instead. you know, there's something different about them, but like, it makes me want whatever it is that they have. And that's why, you know, people get models for, for anything, you know, let's all mo- use models for whatever product that they want to sell. And it's also kind of like nice and fuzzy, you know, like in real life, it's not really black and white and there's not really like this nice haze over it because the picture's been edited. So while glamour is something used to get people to buy a product, it's not real. It's It's gone through an editing process and the editing process has produced something that makes you think it could be real, but it's not quite there. You never wake up as a glamorous person. Even like the most glamorous movie stars, they don't wake up glamorous. They have to put on their makeup and they have to go to the photo shoot and they have to ha- be photoshopped, which this picture was photoshopped. and But that's how people sell things. And, I believe God has a marketing strategy too that uses a different kind of glamor. Because while glamor is something that cannot be attained by a person in this sense, God, his editing process on us is not a farce. It's not something that is not attainable. And when people realize, man, they actually did change, I could change like that too, that's what makes them want to know who Jesus is. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And this is a very popular verse in, in, um, in Campus Ministries, a very popular verse. And I'm having trouble flipping through. All right. First Peter chapter three, and I'll read um, verses 13 to 17. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So oftentimes in campus ministry context, we like to cite just verse 15. You know, We have to be ready always to give a reason for what we believe. And that's true, and we're, we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow. But that's not the most important thing. We need to know how to answer, but the question is, why are people asking? And when you look at the bo- broader context of where 1 Peter 3.15 comes in, Peter is talking about the fact that the Christian life is one of suffering. And he goes on in another part to say that no matter whether you're doing good or you're doing evil, you're going to suffer. Life is hard. So, why not suffer for good? And even on students, or for students on campuses, there's real suffering. I used to just say, you know, like, oh, we suffer because we all have final exams. I had a six hour final exam this semester. You know, I thought I was suffering, but. Students in school also go through real kinds of suffering. Their parents die, they get sick, students themselves get sick and will have to drop out of school for a semester or a year. There's real types of suffering that go on and sometimes we go through those own struggles ourselves. And the thing that makes people start to ask questions is how come when they go through this struggle, They're not falling completely apart. What is it about the way that they're going through the struggle, my mom died last year too, but look at the way that she's acting because her mom died. It's completely different than what was going on in my life. I wonder what the difference is. That's what's important for us. So God's glamor, it's not a glamor that, you know, puts sunglasses on and photoshops our face. You know, and, and I put two verses here that we often look at for, you know, whether or not we should adorn ourselves, but I'm not going to talk about that. But I think it, it goes in with this. Let's look at 1 Peter 3 verses 3 and 4. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And if someone has the King James version of Psalm 149 verse four, if you could please read that out loud. Psalm 149 verse four in the King James. God beautifies the meek with salvation god makes us beautiful in a different way he makes our characters beautiful and that character is what makes people start to ask questions because people's characters are not naturally beautiful i have a lot of friends who are having babies now and um The first thing I hear from them is that babies are so selfish. All they do is they cry and they use the bathroom and, you know, they cry and they want to eat. And, you know, it's all about me, 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 unless if you start to train them. That's how humans are, you know, when they first come out. And unless if we're trained and we're changed, that's how we continue to be. But the fact that Jesus changes us not to be like that anymore is something that's very powerful. And it makes people to start to ask the question, why? I want to look at the example of a few Bible characters to see how it was that, this, that their lives begged the question. Um, and this one is talking about the, the Hebrew boys in, in, in Babylon. And she writes that the fact that these men, worshippers of Jehovah, were captives in Babylon and that the vessels of God's house had been placed in the temple of the Babylonish gods was boastfully cited by the victors as evidence that their religion and customs were superior to the religion and customs of the Hebrews. That's We're stopping halfway, that's not the end of the the quote. But let's stop and think about a secular university where professors claim that evolution shows that there was no creation, where higher criticism shows that God did not write the Bible but that man did. In a way, they're saying that they have conquered God, that they have not, you know, God does not exist, at least not in the way that we think that he has. In the same way that that, that the Babylonians were proud that they had captured Jerusalem and they thought that they had conquered their God. But let's see what God did in response. Yet, through the very humiliation that Israel's departure from him had invited, God gave Babylon evidence of his supremacy, of the holiness of his requirements, and of the sure results of obedience. And this testimony he gave as alone it could be given through those who were loyal to him. You see, some of the only arguments that can be made for God, in favor of God, to show that he really is still on the throne is through the way that he works in our lives in helping us to be loyal to him. Let's look at another quote. This one is talking about Joseph. Daniel and Joseph are my two favorite Bible characters, and so we're gonna talk about them a lot today. But um, Joseph also, he went to Egypt, and this is what she says about his experience. The sights and sounds of vice were all about him, but he was as one who saw and heard not. His thoughts were not permitted to linger upon forbidden subjects. The desire to gain the favor of the Egyptians could not cause him to conceal his principles. Had he attempted to do this, he would have been overcome by temptation, but he was not ashamed of the religion of his fathers, and he made no effort to hide the fact that he was a worshiper of Jehovah. So how many of you are students at, at a public school, a secular university, and how many of you have to eat in a cafeteria? Yeah, or go out to eat with your friends who are not Adventists, yeah? And what's one of sometimes the most awkward things, like, at least... I, well, if it has pork in it, or for me, it's like when the food comes, if people are still talking to me, and like, I need to bless my food. It's like, well, I could just, like, say the prayer quickly in my mind, you know? But, like, no, like, we need to be not ashamed to show that we're followers of Jehovah, even if it means, like, hang on one second, like, let's stop, let's stop this conversation just for one second, you know? But that, you know... Not, not being afraid to hide, you know, not hiding the fact that he was a worshiper of Jehovah. We cannot hide the fact that we're worshipers of God. That doesn't mean we have to, you know, be inconvenient about it, except for where inconvenience is called for. But you, it it doesn't mean that, you know, you're, you're, you're being a pain about it, but it means that you're unashamed about what you believe. And... Um, and the fact that, you know, he, if he would have done this just once, it would have helped him succumb to temptation. And we know the temptations that jo- that were thrown at Joseph were many, and they were hard. So the fact that even the little unfaithfulness of trying to hide, you know, like maybe like, you know, just like quickly bowing your head and then and raising it back up to pray for your food or something else small, that um, that, that could actually be the first step on going down a path that leads us to falling into temptation. Um, looking back at that chapter where... Um, Ellen White writes about students at secular universities. She talks about the Waldensians, and we read this quote earlier today, but I'm gonna read it again. The Waldensians entered the schools of the world as students. They made no pretensions, apparently they paid no attention to anyone, but they lived out what they believed. They were doers of the word, not hears only. I'm not reading that, I just said that. <laughs> they, were, they never sacrificed principle, and their principle soon became known This was different from anything the other students had seen, and they began to ask themselves, what does this all mean? Why cannot these men be induced to swerve from their principles? While they were considering this, they heard them praying in their rooms, not to the Virgin Mary, but to the Savior whom they addressed as the only mediator between God and man. The worldly students were encouraged to make inquiries, and as the simple story of truth as it is in Jesus was told, their minds grasped it. And this is again important, why it's important for us to understand what Tondo was saying about learning from God, having that change who we are, and that our, our actions are actually a result of that, of that devotional experience, of that time with God. Because then when somebody asks us, why do you do that? Why do you pray that way? Why don't you eat that? You don't say, because somebody told me so. You're able to actually give a testimony of how Jesus changed your life, and that's why you're doing that thing right now. Every change of our character is an opportunity for us to tell a testimony to somebody else. And these Waldensians were able to tell a testimony because they were so in love with God that in the, the way that that relationship impacted them impacted the way that they answered the questions that people asked when they saw like, man, these people are different than us. Um, I think one of the biggest ways um, that, no, okay. So <laughs> being, being on a, being, that person who's changed in the way that, um, in the way that we've been describing is kind of like being a person from a different country, you know, like being a Seventh-day Adventist, a committed Seventh-day Adventist who understands from the Bible why we do what we do, not because mom and dad told us to do it, but because, you know, we've studied it for ourselves and we've been convicted by the Holy Spirit that it is truth. Um, it changes us, you know? It's like, man, we're, we live completely different. And, and, and that, that's what makes people start to ask questions, like, man, you're, you're different than me, you're kind of weird, you know? Like, what, what's this difference? And to me, it reminds me of, of being from a different country. I told you earlier, my mom's from Cuba. My dad's not from Cuba, but now that he's been married to her for 27 years, he says that he is Cuban. And, um, and so the, I've, I was raised in a, in a Cuban home. And uh, my mom would, you know, just always encourage me, like, oh no, we don't do that because we're Cuban, or we eat this because we're Cuban. Like, you know, tonight's, um, today's, uh, what's it called? New Year's Eve, and I know my parents back at home, what they'll be eating is this thing called turron. Like, it's this hard, like, kind of sweet stuff, and it's because it's New Year's Eve, and that's just what Cubans do on New Year's Eve is they eat (laughs) turron, and um, and they eat grapes, too. But, you know, there's just certain things you do because of your culture, and I didn't think I was that Cuban because, you know, I was born in America, I grew up in America, Um, and then I went to college, and I had a roommate, and she'd start to ask me, Amy, like, why don't you treat people like this? I'm like, oh, because I'm Cuban, you know? And she'd be like, what? (laughs) And then she's like, Amy, why do you do that? Oh, because I'm Cuban. What? And finally she's like, but you've never even been to Cuba. And I was like, yeah, that's true. (laughs) But then, so that was my freshman year of college, but that was the best answer I had. It was because I'm Cuban. Did this die? Uh Uh-oh. Oh, I stepped on it. If it doesn't come back, it's okay. It kind of came back. Okay, Okay. well, they're not pretty anymore, but that's okay. So (laughs) um, she she would always ask me, you know, but you're not even Cuban, like, why can you say that? I was like, I was raised to be Cuban though. Well, last summer, I finally did go to Cuba. And when I got to Cuba, you know what? I fit in. I knew, well, I knew the language well enough that I could communicate. I knew the food that I was expected to eat. I knew like the social, you know, how I was supposed to interact with a person older than me or a person my age. And I knew that they don't respect body, um, personal space in the same way that they do here. I was prepared for all of that because of the way my mom had raised me. Even though I was in America, she raised me like a Cuban. And that's a lot what it's like, what it means to be a Christian. And let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 to understand what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 18. And I'll read it quickly. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them, greeted them from afar off, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have been, had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, actually, we'll, we'll stop at verse 16. But isn't that crazy? God is not ashamed. We are here talking about being unashamed. God is unashamed to call these people his, um, to to be called these people's God, and He's preparing for them a city, because they're not living like like their homeland is here on earth. Instead, they're living like their homeland is in heaven. They believe that they are actually citizens of heaven. They're living like exiles here. And even though we've never been to heaven, God's preparing us now to fit in what it's like to be in heaven. And that's what that's what that's why even though the Adventist lifestyle is like kind of weird sometimes to other people it's important because it's preparing us for heaven and it also causes people to ask questions then asking questions is secondary you know ultimately the fact that we're being faithful to God that's what's most important but the, the side benefit of that is it causes people to ask questions and gives us an opportunity to share testimonies um, I would say the biggest thing, I, you saw the slide, slide pass by with Adventist lifestyle. I'll just share one quick story um, about, I guess it's, it's several quick stories, but it's a revolving around the same theme about what aspects of the Adventist life on the secular university cause people to ask the most questions. And I've had people ask questions about why don't you eat meat? Um, I've had people ask questions about why don't you pursue relationships in a, per- in a, in a certain way? And, and those are fairly common, but the number one question that I get asked, does any, who can guess what it is about? Oh, I heard a bunch. <laughs> Say it again. Sabbath. Sabbath, someone said Ellen White's writings. Those do come up sometimes. Um, But the number one is about Sabbath. And I think I didn't realize until this semester the full reason why they ask so much. But I understood, like, it kind of makes sense. Everyone else at school, they study seven days a week so that they can do well at school. But as a Seventh-day Adventist who believes that the Bible teaches that we keep Sabbath from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, people would ask, how in the world are you able to take that whole day off and still do well in school? And it wasn't until this year when I had that six hour exam that I was talking about, it was on a Friday, as soon as, like two hours after the exam ended, Sabbath started, and then Sabbath ends on Saturday night, I had another exam Monday morning. And I was like, man, Lord, this is like one of the, I was one of the few times I've ever actually seen where Sabbath does take away time from studying because the turnaround time was so short. You know, I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind to try to do anything, like change anything about that. But I was like, now I understand why people are asking this question because it was for the first time where in my faithfulness, I thought like this could actually negatively impact me. Like I have to trust in God and, um, and, and, but people, they start to ask questions about it. They're like, you know, but even though you take this day off, you're still at peace. Like why? And other people. You know, just everyone's always asking about Sabbath. And I found it to be the biggest opportunity for me to share my faith in Jesus because I know keeping the Sabbath is not just about keeping a day of the week. It's not just taking a day off, but it's knowing that it's God who gives us rest. In Matthew, um, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we know the Sabbath is an experience that's not just taking a day off, but it's a symbol for the fact that we have eternal rest in God. And that eternal rest in God should be reflected in our life and it starts to make people ask questions. Um, All right, the last thing we're gonna talk about is always. And what always is consistency. So we talked about we need to be authentic Christians. Authentic Christianity causes us, oh you guys, oh you can't see it, this is strange. Um, Authentic Christianity tends to beg a question so that people will start to ask, why do you do this? Why don't you do that? Um, And the thing is, this is why we need to be consistent in our Adventist lifestyle. Why why our our experience needs to be something that doesn't waver over time, but it needs to be constant. Let's look at Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. We're almost done. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. And you guys know this story. This is um, in the context of Daniel in the lion's den, and it says, When Daniel knew that this document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. And then we know, you know, there were the spies and they came and they they said, oh, look, see, Daniel's praying, but how did they know that they could find Daniel praying there three times a day? What does the verse say? As he had done often, as he had done previously. Daniel was consistent in his devotional life. He didn't let it go. And people knew about that. They knew from walking past his window, maybe, and they saw him praying that. Daniel was consistent in his devotional life. We need to be consistent in our relationship with God. It's not something where we just come to GYC and we get on on a spiritual high, and then two weeks later after we go back to school and, you know, the semester gets hard again, like all of a sudden, you know, our devotional life starts to dwindle. And it's something that, you know, it's hard because the rest of life presses in. But this is why what Tondo was talking about was important. It takes number one priority, and we need to be consistent with it not just our devotional life, but also our life in general. Let's look at Acts chapter 20, verse 18. When I read this the first time, I felt like really rebuked because I don't think I can do the same thing that Paul did. Um, Acts 20, verse 18. And the Bible says, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So he's telling them, and the reason he's telling them this is look at the way that I lived because it's something that you can look at to understand how you should live. He's saying, look at from the very first day I came to Asia how I lived. And the question is, how long had he been there for? Let's look in chapter 19, verse 10. And it says... This continued, this is actually right after a verse that Tondo read earlier today. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How long? Two years. So not only did they spread the gospel to all of Asia in two years, how long was Paul consistent in his lifestyle for? Two years, how many of us are able to stay consistent in our relationship with God, consistent in what we say people say to people, consistent in what we believe in for two years to the point where we can point to the thing from the first day I came here to this campus, look at the way that I lived my life. he was consistent for two years and then Joseph we won 't read the whole account oops, um, but you can find it in genesis thirty nine verses one to thirteen I'm sure it's a story that we 're all familiar with about. How Joseph was sold into slavery in Potiphar's household and he was faithful in the little things and God blessed him to the point where Joseph was promoted to be the highest ranking person in Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife tried to, t- tried to seduce Joseph, but he said no, and he also wouldn't even allow himself to be near her. We will look at those verses. Um, we'll read verses 11 to 13. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw, yeah, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her house and had fled out of the house. Oh, that ends kind of in a bad spot. I should have started in verse 10. But what, um, what is happening is every time she would try to get Joseph to come in and to commit that sin with her, he said no. He wouldn't even let himself be near her. He was consistent in denying the temptation so that he would not fall. We need to be consistent in resisting temptation. There are a lot of temptations on secular university campuses. Um, I was telling a student on the drive up here, um, about when I, when I first went to University of Michigan, I made the decision because I knew that leaving you know, the, the Adventist Mecca of Andrews University to go to the secular university, that there were gonna be a lot of temptations and a lot of opportunities for me to leave. And I made specific decisions in my, in my mind before I set foot on that campus. Lord, I never wanna be caught in this situation. Lord, I'm never gonna go to that kind of place. Lord, I'm never gonna take a sip of this kind of drink. And, you know, by God's grace, I was able to stay faithful to those commitments. And so that not even presenting ourselves with the opportunity to, to be tempted. Sometimes, you know, the devil's smart. He's still going to tempt us. But the way that, you know, as, as much as we can do to not help him along in our own temptation, like, let's take those precautions so that we can be faithful to God. Um, we'll have a couple quotes. And this is again about Daniel and his friends. In reaching this decision, the Hebrew youth did not act presumptuously, but in firm reliance upon God. They did not choose to be singular, but they would be so rather than dishonor God. So they weren't trying to stick out like a sore thumb. And I think that's something that, like, I thought I used to have to do as an Adventist. Like, I had to be so proud about being an Adventist. Like, I have to stick out on purpose, and so, you know. You have to do just like things so that, you know, like everyone sees, I'm an Adventist, but not necessarily. The only reason why we should stick out is because we're relying on God. We don't want to dishonor God. But in anything that won't dishonor God, you know, we shouldn't be sticking out like a sore thumb. Um, Should they compromise with this wrong? And this is talking in reference to them eating the food that the king had prepared that wasn't clean. should they pr- compromise with this wrong in this instance by yielding to the pressures of circumstances, their departure from principle would weaken their sense of right and their abhorrence of wrong. So it would weaken their ability to discern the difference between right and wrong. The first wrong step would yield, would lead to others until their connection with heaven severed. They would be swept away by temptation." They knew that even though this first test was maybe a small test. It was just like maybe eating some meat that they shouldn't eat or drinking some drink that they shouldn't drink. But they knew if they took the step down that path with just this one time, that they would then enter into full blown temptation and be severed from heaven. Like We need to be realize the severity of that, that you know, we can't yield to just one temptation. If we do fall, you know, we know that Jesus is there, he's able to forgive us and he's able to give us the victory the next time we encounter that temptation. But as much as possible, let's re- rely on Jesus before the temptation comes so that we don't fall into sin in the first place. Um, again, God brought Daniel and his associates into connection with the great men of Babylon, that in the midst of a nation of idolaters, they might represent his character. So he brought them in Babylon specifically to represent his character. How did they become fitted for a position of so great trust and honor? It was faithfulness in little things that gave complexion to their whole life. They honored God in the smallest duties as well as in their larger responsibilities. As God called Daniel to witness for him in Babylon, so he calls us to be his witnesses in the world today. In the smallest as well as the largest affairs of life, he desires us to reveal to men the principles of his kingdom. Many are waiting for some great work to be brought to them, while daily they lose opportunities for for revealing faithfulness to God. You know, I, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be the President of the United States. I don't anymore, but when I was a little kid, I wanted to be the President of the United States. And so I would dream about the day, you know, when like I could change the world by being the President of the United States. But we're not supposed to dream about the day we can be the President or the Senator or a pastor or an architect or whatever. We have opportunities today, to reveal faithfulness to God that will begin to make impacts in other people's lives and truly will begin to change the world. We don't have to wait until another day, we just need to be faithful with those little things that God even gives us today, because he's calling us to the faithfulness. The reason why we do our homework well isn't because the professor asks us to, it's to do it out of faithfulness to God. The secondary matter is we get to, profess, uh, to, profess, to impress our professor, but ultimately we're doing it out of faithfulness to God. Um, Oh, I didn't finish reading the quote, I'm sorry. Daily, they fail, so this one ended. Um, They lose opportunities for for revealing faithfulness to God. Daily they fail of discharging with wholeheartedness the little duties of life. While they wait for some large work in which they may exercise supposedly great talents and thus satisfy their ambitious longings, their days pass away. And I think that um, we'll be talking about that a little more in the next hour. And finally this quote. This is one that Tondo shared with me and I absolutely love it. I think it's important for what we're talking about now. Our influence on others depends not so much upon what we say but upon what we are. It's about who we are as people. Men may combat and defy logic, they may resist our appeals, but a life of disinterested disinterested service is an argument they cannot gainsay. A consistent life characterized by the meekness of Christ is a power in the world, a consistent life. Largely, people are very inconsistent, but when Jesus enters our life, we have the opportunity to have consistency that makes people beg the question, and they realize that that consistency is a mark of true Christianity, of the fact that Jesus is within our hearts. Um, I wanna share with you a story. I just gotten my email about three days ago from a friend of mine who's studying engineering, and, um, he told me that he's in his senior year. He's taking his hardest engineering classes right now, and um, a, he took a year off last year to be a campus missionary. He learned a lot, and he, you know, he's fully committed his life to God. He wants to be faithful in everything, and. Um, Apparently, I'm not an engineer, I was a history major in college, I am now in law school, so I don't know anything about engineering, but what he says with engineering is there's these problem sets, and the problem sets are really hard. Like each problem might take you six hours, and there's like five or six problems per, for per homework assignment and you have a homework assignment for like four or five classes. So he's like easily, you know, the time in the week would run out before you have enough time to do this homework. So what students do without the professors knowing, although I'm sure the professors must know somehow, is they, they get solutions manuals to these problems. You guys probably remember these from like algebra in elementary school, not elementary school, in high school, whenever you take algebra. <laughs> um, and in the back, you know, there's like, you know, for the odd numbers, you could find the answers and something similar to that. And what students will do is they'll just go, they'll find the problems that the professor assigned, and they'll just start copying the answers out. And he said for his first three years of college, you know, he didn't see anything wrong with that, and he, he continued to do the same. And sure enough, the first or second week of class, these solutions manuals start circulating around the school. And um, he got a hold of one of them, and he was about to start doing his homework, and he was overcome with this conviction that that was not honest, that he could not do his homework off of the solutions manual. And he's like, I don't know how I'm gonna have the time to do all of my homework, even though this is my hardest engineering class, but I'm not gonna use the solutions manual because I believe that it would be dishonest, it would be breaking God's commandments. Well, he took the midterm and he got like a, a C plus or a B minus on the midterm. So it wasn't, it wasn't as good as he had hoped. He got back a big homework assignment and he'd only gotten a B or a C on it. So he was getting very discouraged, and towards the fi- end of the final, he was like, man, maybe I should use the solutions manual, and he saw another student who had the solutions manual. So he didn't ask for the manual, but he, he asked the friend, like, hey, can you explain to me this problem? Because he's like, my friend has the manual, and my friend will explain it to me from the manual. So I'm not getting the answer from the manual, but, and so he was like, okay, I can do that. That's like a loophole. That's a way around. But then again, he was convicted. He's like, no, like, I don't want to get the answers from the manual. Like, I know I just have to work on this all by myself. So even though he had asked his friend for help when the friend came, he's like, You know what, like we'll just talk about it, you know, later. I don't I don't actually wanna go through this. He's like, Okay. Well, he went and to get to top it all off, the exam was on a Sabbath. He couldn't, he couldn't go and take the exam on Sabbath. So you had to go and talk to the professor. Can I please change the date? And the professor's like, are you Jewish? Because you don't look Jewish. He's like, no, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> and so you know, he goes and he gets the date rearranged and um, he gets the exam. And on the exam was this question that they had had during the course of the semester that he didn't think was gonna be on the exam. But he struggled through it. He didn't think he had finished it all the way. He was hoping at best to get a B in this class. And then, you know, two or three days later, the professor had graded all the exams. His grade was posted and a friend called, hey, did you check your grade yet? He's like, no, I haven't checked it yet. He went and he checked his grade. Do you know what he got in the class? He got an A minus from being faithful, and I mean, I think part of it is he learned how to think through the problems on his own instead of just copying the answers out of the book. But God honored that faithfulness. That means with him having had a C on an assignment and a B or a C on a midterm exam that he would have had to do very well on that final exam. But because he was faithful to Sabbath and he was faithful in honesty, God honored that. And now he's going to be able to share that experience with other people who are struggling. This is why we need to be consistent in everything that we do. Even if no one else ever finds out about it, even if I had never heard this testimony from my friend, God is smiling down upon that faithfulness. And that's the ultimate thing that we're seeking. And knowing that we need to be consistent in everything that we do. I want to close with one last quote. And it says this, and this is where the title of this this seminar came from. The badge of Christianity is not an outward sign, not the wearing of a cross or a crown but it is that which reveals the union of man with God. So that brand of authenticity, the little apple mark, the little C on the purse, the the badge of Christianity is that which reveals the union of man with God, which Tondo talked about this morning. By the power of his grace manifested in the transformation of character, the world is to be convinced that God has sent his son as its redeemer. No other influence that can surround the human soul has such power as the influence of, on, of the unselfish life. The strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. How many of you wanna be loving and lovable Christians? Yeah, I wanna be a loving and lovable Christian. But how many of you know, man, I struggle with being consistent, or man, I, I don't know if my life always displays authentic Christianity because I struggle having that connection with God, Or you know that in something that we've talked about today that there's an area that you struggle with, but you wanna surrender that to God so that he can work on it in each of our lives so that we can be the types of Christians on campus that are a powerful argument in favor of the gospel. How many of you are in that situation? Well, let's pray together and I'll pray with you. Dear Heavenly Father and Lord, we thank you so much for your word and we thank you so much for the words of your prophet that you've given to us that we may understand how to represent you. Father, we know that we cannot change ourselves to represent you, but that that change must come from you entering into our hearts and us having a wonderful experience with you where we become more like you, Lord. And we just pray that that may be our experience each and every day. Father, I pray for the students in this room, and I include myself in that prayer, that you help us to be consistent. That you help us, Lord, to live a life that begs questions so that we may share about the wonderful goodness that you have done in our lives, Lord, that we may share the way that you have changed us. And Lord, we just pray that in all things, when people see us walking around this world, that they will know that we are like Jesus, Lord, that without us even having to open a word, that will be an argument in favor of the gospel. And I just pray that this will truly be our experience and that, In this way, we will be able to help hasten the soon coming of your Son. We ask these things humbly and in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons,